I guess I was fairly apprehensive the whole time that I was flying in combat. And, and I guess there's good reason to feel that way. I'm there to cause a lot of damage and a lot of harm, and therefore they would like to damage me. And I was 25 years old at that time. One of the things that my dad had done when he was teaching me how to fly, and I've, I've been very fond of saying, if I have been successful as an aviator, is because he was the one that taught me how to fly. He didn't just teach me how to fly. He taught me the why of it at the same time. So he was telling me the engineering. He was telling me the structural ramifications of pulling G's, for example, and how airplanes fly. So that was a great start. But then... Having the aeronautical engineering degree where you learned about profile drag and induced drag and shockwave drag, transonic drag, all of those things, uh, I'm convinced that made me better prepared to learn how to fly in the Navy when it was time to go through Navy pilot training. So I had... Not a whole lot of flight experience. I had about 150 hours of flight time before I joined the Navy. But between that and the aeronautical engineering, I had a huge head start. Why Navy? Well, the story of how I wound up in the Navy was a little bit complicated because back in the early, late 1960s, uh, we had the Vietnam conflict going on. And so the draft was something that was going on. The Selective Training and Service Act of 1940 created the first peacetime draft in American history. Used to fill the ranks during World War II, it was eventually replaced by the Selective Service Act of 1948. Although modified at times, the Selective Service Act remained in effect through the start of the Vietnam War. During the Vietnam War, the draft became a hotly contested issue. Anti-draft demonstrations on college campuses erupted throughout the nation. You were only going to have four years of college deferment that you could have. And since I transferred from a community college into the four-year university system, I was out of sequence in one course. It was going to take five years to graduate. And so at the end of my 
third year, beginning of my fourth year, uh, I had to fill out a questionnaire if I was going to graduate in four years, and the answer was no. And so immediately the draft came after me, and they were going to draft me out of college, right out of college. And so I figured I'd better go sign up for an officer program because I wanted to fly jet fighters. And the first place I went to, I walked into the Air Force recruiter, and the Air Force recruiter said, well, when are you going to graduate? And I said, well, that's the problem. I'm not going to. And he said, well, we, we don't talk to candidates unless you're within six months of graduation. So come back, come back a year from now or a year and a half from now, where there wasn't going to be a year from now. And so I walked into the Navy recruiter and the first question was, what's your, what's your draft status? And I said, it's 1A. And he pulls out this form letter that says, dear draft board, please leave this guy alone. We're considering him for an officer program. And he signs it at the bottom, and he said, sign here. This gives us three months to work this. And I signed there, so immediately I was impressed. And so that's the story of why I wound up in the Navy instead of in the Air Force. And I'm, I'm glad it went that way, because I got to have the experience of flying from aircraft carriers, which is a very unique part of aviation. And I would have missed it. Uh, most likely if I'd, if I'd been in the Air Force. So that was a lucky break. And so I'm proud of the fact that I did get to be a naval officer and serve in the military for altogether 27 years. Wow. Uh, can you kind of summarize the, the Navy experience up to the time you got your wings? Well, um, I, I'm sure we've all heard the expression boot camp. Uh, it wasn't called boot camp, but it was just like boot camp. You had Marine Corps drill instructors screaming at you, urging you along, um, and 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 it if if you were pretty thin skinned, it was going to be a difficult thing for you to do. But it was called, in my case, it was Aviation Officer Candidate School, and it was uh, let's see, it was about sixteen weeks that you went through it. And that was basically learning how to be an officer, learning how to be a member of the military and learning how to be an officer. But it also included primary flight training, which was great. So I got to fly the Beechcraft T-34B Mentor, uh, which is a bonanza, a bonanza with two seats, a tandem cockpit, but it was the same engine as the early bonanzas. Same wing, same same fuselage structure for the most part. And I got to fly that. That took about seven weeks to get through the course of instruction. And you wound up soloing. Uh, the T-34. Of course, I had sold previously to that and had my private license prior to that. But I got to do that. And that was the course of instruction. And at the very end of it, on, on the day that you were commissioned, graduated and commissioned from Aviation Officer Candidate School, that same drill instructor that had been screaming at you all those weeks of your training, all of a sudden, he was your first salute. 
And so he got to be the one who rendered your first salute to you. And that was Staff Sergeant Sanders was my drill instructor. Never forget him. Never forgot. Never forget. In the the training portion of your Navy career leading up to getting your wings, what what's the what did you learn that you didn't know before you started the Navy program about flying? Oh, so many things. And of course, I had flown general aviation aircraft, and so that was the same as primary flight training. Everything beyond that was was much more advanced. Uh, I had never flown a jet airplane until I went to the T two A Buckeye, uh, North American T two A Buckeye. And that was the first jet that I ever flew. Jet aviation is so very much different from piston engines or even just propeller-type aircraft. Not just the speeds involved, but the altitudes involved, the flight envelopes, the the G-loading that you're able to put on those kind of airplanes. So it's 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 much more high-speed flight, much more much more dynamics. There's a whole lot more flight dynamics involved because if you picture something like Let's say the difference between a J3 Piper Cub, which is much aerodynamics, very little vehicle dynamics because the vehicle mass is so light. Now, contrast that with something like an F-104 Starfighter, which I've flown, which has these little tiny wings, a lot of mass in the fuselage, a lot of inertia, a lot of momentum that can be built up with pitch rates and roll rates and things like that. There's so much in the world of dynamics and maybe not quite so much aerodynamics. And so there was a lot to learn about the flight dynamics of big, heavy airplanes uh, as being different from very light airplanes. So what year did you receive your wings? And then when you were ready to go to the fleet, where did you go first? I was uh, pinned on my wings on January the 29th, 1971, at Corpus Christi. I had finished advanced jet training, actually at Kingsville Naval Air Station, but the ceremony with the Admiral took place at, uh, at Corpus Christi, Naval Air Station Corpus Christi. So I received my wings that day, and I had orders to report to Miramar Naval Air Station in San Diego to train to fly the F-4 Phantom. And that had been my first choice. My first choice. You filled out a preference card when you were within, I don't know, pick a number, three months of receiving your wings. And my first choice had been F-4 Phantoms on the West Coast. (laughs) And... Second choice was F-8 Crusaders on the West Coast. And then third choice would have been F-4 Phantoms on the East Coast and F-8 Crusaders on the East Coast. I got my first choice. And I think I think you had to do well. And I think because of the head start that my dad gave me 
and the head start that having some flight time ahead of time and the aeronautical engineering, all of those things and the model airplanes, let's not forget the model airplanes. I think those gave me a head start. So I did fairly well and got my first choice. At what point were you pretty certain that you were going to Southeast Asia, that you were going to a real fight? As soon as I saw orders to F4 Phantoms, I knew that, and particularly since I was going to the West Coast, we knew that we would be taking part in the Vietnam conflict. And how did you feel about that? It, it wasn't a popular war. Those of us that lived through it uh, at that period of time knew that the country was somewhat torn apart by it, and it wasn't popular here in the U.S., but I had signed on to be a naval officer, and when you sign on to be a naval officer, you're going to receive orders, and you will follow those orders. And so it was something that I knew would most likely occur, although you kept thinking, well, gee, maybe this war will be over soon. Maybe it'll be over right away. Yeah. Uh, so I, I wasn't necessarily going after it because I would get to fly in combat, although that was a very challenging form of flying and would develop you in many, many ways as a pilot, as an aviator. Uh, but I, I knew there was a good chance that I'd wind up in Vietnam, and sure enough, I did. What do you remember about the, uh, the weapons training that you had to go through to uh, operate the, the jet fighters? Well, in the Navy, in the Navy, you got to do that before you got your wings. Uh, the Air Force doesn't do that. The Air Force, you basically have learned how to fly a supersonic jet. You've learned how to fly instruments and how to do that very thoroughly. You've learned how to fly in formation and maybe a little bit of tactical maneuvering. But any of your weapons training happens after you get your wings in the Air Force. In the Navy, as a tactical jet pilot, uh, we did air-to-air -air gunnery. Uh, trying to remember if we did air-to-ground gunnery. I don't think we did any air-to-ground gunnery. But in the A-4 Skyhawk, in advanced training, uh, we did bombing. We did uh, practice bombing. And we did air-to-air uh, -air gunnery. And, in fact, uh, we did gunnery in basic training in the T-2 jets. Uh, before you finished basic training, before you went on to advanced training. So I had fired machine guns. I had dropped practice bombs. And, of course, all of that changed when I got to the Phantom because now you're going to do the real thing. So we did, we did use practice bombs uh, to practice achieving the, the release conditions that you had to arrive at uh, to have your gun sight be telling you where you were going to hit. But then we actually did drop live 500-pounders going through the training in the F-4 Phantom Squadron. When you uh, Do you remember the date of your, or do you remember your first mission, and how old were you on that day? My first mission in Vietnam was my first flight with that squadron because I had completed all my training in the, in the Navy. It's called a readiness air group or RAG squadron. And that was at San Diego. That squadron doesn't go deployed. It doesn't go aboard carriers, but you train on how to fly the, the AF-4 Phantom at that, at that squadron. 
And then I guess I had done well in that training as well. So I was designated what they called a category alpha. And that was someone who could replace a pilot on a ship over in the Tonkin Gulf. So I was sent over to the Coral Sea to join Fighter Squadron 111, the Sundowners, as a replacement pilot. And so my first sortie in that squadron was April the 18th of 1972, and it was a combat mission. So that was my first catapult from the aircraft carrier in a Phantom with 3,000 pounds of bombs on board. Do you remember what you were thinking <laughs> when, uh, before you released from the carrier? Well, I, I knew it was a combat mission. It was actually a mission to troops in contact in South Vietnam. So we weren't expecting a MiG threat. We weren't expecting a lot of anti-aircraft artillery, which we call AAA anti-aircraft artillery. We weren't expecting a whole lot of big guns shooting at us. Uh, there's always the small guns shooting at you, AK-47s, things like that. We weren't expecting any of that. I was apprehensive. I was apprehensive in my first first combat sortie. And I was probably apprehensive as well because this was the heaviest Phantom I had ever flown. And the Phantom was an interesting airplane to fly from the aircraft carrier because you went down the catapult and you got to the end of the catapult and you were flat. You were in a flat attitude. And, and you couldn't rotate until you got clear of the carrier deck. And now you had to get from being flat to 10 degrees pitch angle immediately. If you didn't, you're in the water. And so we went down the catapult at full aft stick. Wow. And what happened was as you got clear of the deck and the acceleration on the catapult was rapid enough, it was four to four and a half Gs of acceleration, it changed the shape of your eyeballs and it was difficult to focus your eyes while the catapult was pushing you. And then once the catapult ended, you had about, I don't know what, 30 feet of deck left, and you're busily trying to focus your eyes. And then once you were off the end, you were sitting there at full half stick, and you watched the attitude gyro, or you watched outside, and as soon as you saw it start to pitch up, you had to be ready to go to almost full forward stick to stop the pitch rate at 10 degrees. At 10 degrees. But you had to get to 10 degrees. Now, you could over-rotate. That wouldn't generally be fatal, although there have been accidents where somebody over-rotated to 25 degrees high and the airplane stalled and rolled, and that, that would not be a fun day. Right. But you had to get to that 10 degrees because you're not going to fly away. You're going to be right into the water if you, didn't, if you didn't get to that attitude. And so at night, at night, it seemed like I had a tendency to over-rotate because you wanted to get away from that nasty, dark-colored ocean. Yeah. And... And like I say, you could you could survive a little bit of an over-rotation. You could not survive an under-rotation. By 1972, there were pilots over there who had had some experience in, in the theater and in those missions. Do you, do you remember anyone in particular trying to give you advice as a new replacement pilot or saying, you know, here, here's the thing to making it to surviving over here? Was there any of that kind of help? <laughs> yes, all of them. 
<laughs> all of the above. Yeah, all of the above. Well, I, I remember very vividly the, oh golly, the squadron commanding officer, Bob Pearl, uh, the executive officer, Bob Rice. Uh, we had a very experienced group of people over there. And of course, the Vietnam War had cranked up in about 1964. So by 1972, you had a whole squadron full of experienced aviators. Now, I joined the, the carrier halfway through that cruise. So all the other pilots in the squadron had experience in combat, and I didn't. But one of the, one of the really experienced pilots was one of the pilots that helped found the Navy's Top Gun School. Jim Rulofson was the operations officer when I got to the squadron. I'm sorry, wait, he wasn't. He was the maintenance officer when I first joined the squadron. And then very shortly after that, he became the operations officer. But the ops officer uh, at the time as well was uh, a very experienced. He had flown F-8s previously, Dave Coles. And he was now the ops officer in this F-4 Phantom Squadron. He's the one that that caused me to get the nickname Hoot, by the way. Because when I first joined the squadron, I was a 25-year-old, 25-year-old kid. Uh, now, I was experienced. I had I'd flown the F-4 Phantom in training and been through Navy pilot training. But the, the way I like to tell the story is that he said, okay, kid, you got a nickname. He didn't call me kid. But he said, okay, well, do you have a nickname? And my real name is Robert. So I said, oh, yes, sir, it's Bob. And he said, no, come on. I, I mean a real nickname. And I said, well, occasionally in the past I've been called Hoot. And, of course, that came from the movie star cowboy, Hoot Gibson. So if your last name's Gibson, you're going to get Hoot for a nickname. My dad told me that he, when he was in the Army Air Corps, had picked up the nickname Hoot. And so that's when I got the nickname Hoot. And that went on my name tag on my flight suit. Uh, that went on the side of my cockpit, my canopy in the F-4 Phantom. That went on my coffee cup. So that was April of 72. I changed from being Bob Gibson to being Hoot Gibson. <laughs> there are people in aviation, well, there's people all around the world who have known you for years that might struggle to know your real first name. <laughs> it's true. My, my, my dad went to a test pilot symposium, and this was when I was brand new in the F-14 Tomcat. And the Tomcat was brand new because I was in the first squadron. I was in the Navy's first Tomcat squadron. And two of our air crews, it was probably a pilot and a, and a Rio, a radar intercept officer, a, a backseater in the Tomcat, went to the Society of Experimental Test Pilots Symposium, and my dad was a member of that. And so after their talk, they talked about the F-14 Tomcat, this brand new jet fighter that uh, the Navy was, was getting. And my dad walked up to them after their talk, and he said, hey, how do you do? I'm Paul Gibson. Uh, my son's a pilot in your squadron. And they said, really, who's that? And he said, Bob Gibson. And they looked at him and they said, Bob Gibson, Bob Gibson. We don't have, oh, you mean Hoot. <laughs> so, yes, uh, most of the world didn't know me as Hoot uh, for, for quite a few years. When you docked with Mir, did the Russians say, hello, Hoot? <laughs> yes. Uh, now, it was, yeah, it was interesting. Sometimes in the different languages, Hoot, hoot doesn't come across as Hoot. Uh, 
I remember when I when I flew a shuttle mission with the Japanese. I flew a joint mission with Japan. One of the Japanese astronauts that we were training uh, couldn't say hoot, so it was hoot. It was hoot. So, uh, and I'm trying to think. I think the Russians were able to pronounce it. Were able to pronounce it hoot or hoot rather. And then, did you have to get into an explanation of old-time Western movies? Probably not. <laughs> well, you know, over the years, um, since I'm old enough, of course, I I knew about Hoot Gibson, the movie star cowboy. But nowadays, oh golly, none of our none of our young people have ever heard anything about someone named Hoot Gibson who was a cowboy. So I'm always explaining, always explaining. Yeah, he was a movie star cowboy. <laughs> 